technology in the workplace. Um, when I think back to when I started in UCD and I used to have to walk half a mile down Kilmacud Road to queue at the phone box to ring my bow in Galway. Um, we've come a long way since then and that obviously was only about three years ago. Um, we, we struggle ourselves to keep up with technology. We struggle personally. I know I struggle at home watching my eight-year-old um, and trying to keep up with, he, what, with what he's doing. This morning isn't about the law of technology or technology law. This morning is an overview of the technology-related issues that we as a team of 20 employment lawyers come across on a regular basis. And what, what we plan on doing is telling you what they are and giving you our tips for managing similar issues when they come up in your own organisations. So it's not meant to be all-encompassing. We had to, because we could talk about this forever in a day, we had to pick some areas and these are the areas that we get asked most commonly about. And because there are 20 of us, it tends to be the case that whatever the issues are that we're coming across and that we're getting asked about are similar to the issues that are coming up in each of your own organizations. So Ronnie's going to talk to you about conflict and where technology has a role to play in conflict around monitoring and CCTV and I'm going to talk to you then more about data and personal data and confidential data and subject access requests. So I'm going to hand you over to Ronnie uh, for some of his pearls of wisdom. Thanks, Mel. Um, hello, everyone. You're very welcome uh, back to Mason Hayes or to Mason Hayes, depending on which you are. Um, thanks for making the effort to attend on such a beautiful morning. Um, as Melanie said, I'm going to be looking at the, the, where conflict arises. So, excuse <coughs> me. One of the common lines that's trotted out regularly when you talk about technology in the workplace is that the employee doesn't leave their privacy rights or their, 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 their personal rights at the door of the workplace when they come into the workplace. Um, and that's absolutely correct because there's a, fine, there's a fine balancing act to be carried out with our lovely little picture of what it is. It's, it's trying to, to, to find that balance between the personal rights of the employee what are those personal rights? You've got constitutional rights. You've got rights under the European Convention of Human Rights. You've got rights under data protection law. Data protection law provides that if you're going to monitor someone's personal data, um, that there has to be a fair use of a fair use of it, a transparency around it, um, fair processing, and, and all of these principles that provide for not excessively monitoring and therefore breaching someone's personal rights and their privacy rights. On the other hand, obviously the employer has to manage its business, protect its business. So can I monitor? Yes, you can monitor, but it's not an unfettered right to monitor. But equally, to flip it over, it's not an absolute right on the employee's part uh, to privacy. And how do you then strike that balance between the two sometimes conflicting rights? Um, well, it's something that we're going to say... <coughs> excuse me. It's something that I'm going to say at least three or four times during this short 20-minute slot, and something that Melanie would probably repeat regularly in terms of top tips, it's you need a policy. And you as HR practitioners or managers within the business will know you need a policy. 
but on looking at this area again yesterday and looking at it recently for a, for a, a direct client example in terms of the case law, it's one of those uh, tips uh, that becomes less even of a tip and more of a mandatory prerequisite in order to carry out any type of an internal uh, either disciplinary process or ultimately to go to, to, to dismissal because if it's tested before a third party adjudicator, whether that be a, our new Workplace Relations Commission, whether it's tested before a civil court or a judge, whether it's tested before the Data Protection Commissioner. Um, the first, or one of the first things that will be looked at is in the context of balancing that rights, and particularly where that orientation is more in term, in, in, in leaning towards protecting those personal rights uh, of the employee who's the weaker party. The first question is going to be, was the employee aware of the rules uh, in relation to whatever the issue is. So where do we see these issues in relation to um, uh, the monitoring of employees in the workplace? Well, you see it in relation to email usage. You see it in relation to internet usage. You might see it in relation to CCTV. You might see it in relation to network usage. One of the team had an interesting case where we were acting for uh, a multinational uh, Irish-based US company which got a knock on the door from Universal uh, Pictures, uh, got a, a communication saying that one of your employees has used your network to download illegally um, a film. And when quizzed in relation to the issue, the employee confirmed that yes, they had been downloading uh, a film onto their personal laptop at home, but they were looking at the wheel in the same way that I regularly do at my home um, and trying to get, because their broadband cover wasn't great, and decided, hey, my tech multinational is likely to have a, a, a damn sight better uh, internet coverage in work, so brought their personal device into work, hooked onto the, uh, to the company network, and then downloaded it much quicker. But again, it's an abuse of the company's uh, network. And therefore, um, if you're going to challenge the employee, take disciplinary action, you need to have a policy that makes it clear this is what is lawful or appropriate use of the network. This is what's lawful or appropriate use of your emails, of the internet, um, or a social media policy. In fact, you're not going to have one neat policy that says uh, monitoring of employees in the workplace. You need to have separate policies covering the different aspects of tech that's used in the workplace. An internet and email policy might be one. A social media policy might be another. A CCTV policy where it's used in the workplace might be a third one. But because you're looking at a lot of these heavy principles, because it's only when it gets tested that you're actually challenged in relation to these issues of, well, you know, how's the data going to be used? How's it going, who to what third parties is it going to be circulated for how long? Um, what, are the, what are the reasons as to why? What is the justification for this monitoring? All of that information in order to make it a fair uh, uh, collation of personal data or monitoring, to make it a fair monitoring, needs to be set out in a clear policy. So if you look at the area of CCTV and you've got overt versus covert monitoring. Now, the DPC's website, the Data Protection Commissioner's website, is very user-friendly. Um, you as HR practitioners or as managers, we as lawyers will regularly, and I advise you if you haven't already done so, will regularly access that website for um, guidance on what the DPC expects to see in the context of the processing of personal data. Um, and it's, it's helpful because often when you have a particular factual matrix 
the website's that good that the search facility might allow you to look at a particular situation similar to yours where the DPC gave a decision in relation to whether or not the particular issue constituted uh, fair processing of personal data. <clears throat> in general terms, the DPC says that overt monitoring is fine and covert monitoring is, in general terms, unlawful. That's their starting position is you can't covertly monitor. Um, for the overt monitoring, you have to have a clear policy saying the types of things that I described earlier in relation to setting it out, what, what, what principles uh, arise uh, or govern the, the lawful processing of one's personal data in the context of CCTV. So you have a CCTV camera that's overt, obvious to the employee, but what's not obvious, you have to have a sign nearby, like in Mason Hayes, which says CCTV is used for what purpose? For security and health and safety reasons. Now, that, that's good in that it's a sign at least employees are aware that CCTV is in operation, but what they're not aware of is all that extra information. Why is it, in more broad terms, uh, being used? To what end? To what, to, to what degree? To, where, to what circulation? For how long? All of those principles need to be set out. But for covert monitoring, the DPC says that you can covertly monitor in very exceptional circumstances, and it's where it relates to either the prevention um, apprehension or investigation of an offence. <clears throat> and the DPC also goes on to say that, that the, the, the DPC anticipates that it's only in the context of referring the matter to the guardee um, or to some other regulatory body that might give rise to either civil or criminal proceedings um, that that covert use of CCTV might be lawful. Um, and, it in, and it also adds that, that such covert use of monitoring can't be indefinite. It must be for a short duration. Um, so you have to have that clear policy, and that clear policy should set out this is the issue, this, these are the principles in relation to overt monitoring. There may well be circumstances giving rise to covert monitoring, and it all becomes more relevant then in the context of a disciplinary hearing. And that's you know, touching on some of the practical examples of when this arises. So it's an issue of monitoring covert or, 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 or overt um, uh, over the till in the bar, or in my case... Um, I had a, a, a case a number of years ago. It was a new client of the office, a new client to me personally, and I was getting to know the individual. It was a, a factory which produces a household good or product that all of us use in our day-to-day -day lives. And we're kind of feeling each other out in terms of getting to know each other, so I hadn't got to that trusted advisor level just yet. John is his name. He's not here, so I can say his name. And John um, rang me up and said, uh, Ronnie... Um, I have a situation, uh, I have CCTV, I had some concerns in relation to some stock loss, um, I've been monitoring the CCTV now for the last week or so, and I have him, I have a, a clear footage of uh, one of the employees walking out a side door with what looks like product, it's bulky, I can't necessarily confirm it, but it looks pretty obvious that it's our product under his arm making his way into the car park. Um, so... I'm going to call him into a meeting, I'm going to convene a disciplinary hearing and I'm going to fire him, but I thought I'd better ring you and let you know. And I said, you know, I, I was, you know, I'm not a smart, I'm a bit of a smart aleck, but I would have been inclined to say, well, well thanks, <laughs> thanks for letting me know. I'm not, you know. Obviously, I said, well, we might just talk that through for a few minutes before you have that meeting as to the process that would support uh, a lawful uh, uh, investigation or a lawful dismissal because John was, was very clear I know he is stealing the product. I am going to dismiss him. 
So we teased out the issue in relation to whether or not it was overt or whether or not there was a policy in place. There isn't any policy in place. Um, whether or, and and with me pushing back in relation to these principles, saying, well, you haven't got a policy in place. There, there were neither signs nor a policy uh, setting out that CCTV could be used in the context of uh, disciplinary matters. Um, John, in fairness, pushed back and said, well, I'm not so sure that, it's as, it, that it needs to be as negative as that. Uh, we've, we've had these cameras up for 20-odd years. We're a unionised workplace. We've got collective agreements which don't speak to the issue of CCTV, but uh, working collaboratively on those occasions when it's possible to do so with the unions. We, we, we have actually relied upon CCTV for disciplinary in the past. And I said, fine. And we started charting how we were going to map out uh, the, 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 the process of calling him for the meeting. And I said, he seems like a bit of an Egypt that he walked straight out, though, if you're saying that the, these cameras were up. And he said, no, no, I got him on one of the hidden ones. And then I thought, OK, so we'll just backtrack a bit uh, uh, again. So here's where then you, you have that, that different issue of um, managing the, the legal situation, which is you know, a block saying, oh, you can't use an, a hidden camera which has been hidden for years, um, and when you've got overt cameras which may well, without a policy, have been relied upon, and then in this instance use upon the hidden one. John was having this meeting in any event, and, and that's where you end up getting into uh, the more practical advice of saying, okay, well, there are principles. In fact, it also invites these issues of, 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 of Criminal Justice Act, uh, which provides that where you've got uh, information which may be relevant to the guardie in relation to uh, fraud or robbery or theft offences, that you now must, must use that information. Um, so John was having the meeting in any event, you can have a, a careful discussion around um, you know, the employee's options in light of the fact that we have gained some information, some CCTV evidence, and you know, I'm not going to necessarily go into that now because it's a very difficult path which you've all probably navigated in the, in the past. If it was to bluntly, um, if John was to bluntly go ahead, have that meeting, put the CCTV out there, seek to rely on it and dismiss, he would lose that unfair dismissal case. Or certainly the DPC would deem it to be an unlawful processing of his personal data. And that's the issue then as to whether the employer, when relying on that unlawfully got uh, personal data, will ultimately be held to have unfairly dismissed. It's, it's a bit sort of legalistic in terms of criminal trials, which is then in, invoked in, ter in terms of an internal process, but it's the fruit of the forbidden tree. You know, it's the same kind of prosecutorial principles of can you rely on information um, that was unlawfully got? We're not quite at the levels of the guardie, you know, getting evidence without a warrant, but it's the same principle. And absolutely, the, 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 uh, the EAT, as it was in the WRC, will deem dismissals that, are, that relate to or where, where the dismissal has, been rely, has relied upon um, evidence that has been unlawfully obtained or processed. Uh, those dismissals will be struck down as unfair in general terms. So then you've got other um, types of monitoring that isn't necessarily CCTV, but in relation to mobile phone usage. And we've got two decisions here, two separate case studies. And again, I mentioned the, the DPC's website, and these case studies are quite useful. Um, so, and again, we've got, you know, this is why this area of law is so interesting to us as practitioners, because even preparing for this talk yesterday with a couple of hours session and we, Mel and I, had a ding-dong amongst ourselves as to whether or not one particular factual matrix should be uh, uh, lawful or unlawful or fair dismissal or not. We, I see Orla, we pulled in Orla. And there's always a heated discussion. So there isn't any absolutely right or wrong answer. And it's difficult often to determine 
why in one particular case um, a, a process is deemed to be unlawful and another process might de be deemed to be lawful. Case in point is these, are these two decisions here where you had a hotel uh, which had in a six-month period two separate dismissals for gross misconduct of a nighttime porter who was um, filmed on the uh, night manager's uh, phone um, sleeping on the job. And um, after the first occasion, the, 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 the porter had been given a warning and told, if you're sleeping on the job again, we're going to go, go, go formal on it. And the evidence then of the employee having um, uh, effectively slept on the job was that there was a video recording and a sound recording of snoring, um, which was then relied upon by, so the corporate manager then gives it to the, to the, to the, to the HR department, they convene a meeting and then they, they ultimately dismissed both porters for sleeping on the job and then it was tested by the DPC. And the DPC was, seemed to have been, it's an interesting, it's one of the longer uh, decisions by the DPC, seemed to have been willing to agree that the processing of that data was limited, it was for short duration, it was subsequently deleted, and particularly because the employer said that the decision to dismiss wasn't largely or primarily based on the use of this, this uh, CCTV footage, that in fact it was more reliance was placed on the evidence of the night porter. And of course, the, the, the minutes of the meeting, unfortunately, um, helpfully to the, to the uh, claimant's solicitor in the context of his UD case, said uh, that, that the company was placing reliance on the fact that there was clear evidence in the CCTV footage. So the, the DPC struck down um, that, uh, that processing, that process, uh, by saying that it, was un, that it was an unlawful processing of personal data, that the reliance use uh, the reliance placed on the use of uh, iPhone footage in that context wasn't lawful processing. Uh, and obviously that then has an impact on the dismissal case itself. Secondly, in relation to a residential care home, you had an almost identical uh, factual scenario where a manager or a nighttime supervisor um, uh, films uh, a night porter who's sleeping on the job. And again, that same principle is tested for the DPC, who in this instance formed a different view and decided that, you know, obviously... There are issues in relation to the fair processing, in relation to for how long the CCTV, uh, or how long the, uh, the the footage was retained, how widely it was circulated, but looked at the bigger picture, which is the legitimate business interests of the employer. And when it comes to data processing generally, that's one of the fundamental pr principles: is the personal data being processed for the employer's legitimate business interests? That then leads to these other uh, concepts of. You know, when processing it for legitimate interests, has it been notified to the employee? Is it transparent? Is it proportionate? That all then stems from this guiding principle. Is it a lawful processing in the first place? And the DPC, because of these particular circumstances, and it was only because, in my view, you're talking about vulnerable adults uh, and special needs, that in that particular case, the DPC found that that same principle of using iPhone footage of someone snoring on the job was in fact legitimate processing because of those facts. So you've got conflict in relation to uh, where technology is being used, iPhone footage is being used. One, in one case, the TPC will say, no, that's, that's unlawful processing, and another, it might be lawful processing. So each case has got to be different and will often provoke a different response or reaction, not only from your own team internally, but perhaps from your lawyers and indeed from the third-party adjudicators. In terms of social media policy... <clears throat> So you need a policy to set out in clear terms what is appropriate or correct use of social media. 
the business has an obvious interest in making sure that an employee, when they go onto social media sites, um, doesn't either disparage or comment on or neg negatively, um, uh, adversely uh, 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 affect either the employer or um, other third parties because you're into the space of whether the individual can be deemed to be acting as a representative or agent of the employer. You've got issues around vicarious liability. Any issue around uh, an employee misusing or abusing their own social media, which is you know, personal, but which brings the employer into the frame by either name-checking them or wearing the uniform, uh, that, all of those situations need to be set out in a policy because otherwise you, you run the risk of, as happened in one specific case for unfair dismissal, the employee being held to have acted absolutely inappropriately but not having been aware that the posting of these really derogatory comments in relation to their manager um, was in fact uh, uh, prohibited and would constitute gross misconduct. Um, and without having any evidence of a policy having been made known and, and, and understood by the employee, the dismissal was deemed to be disproportionate and unfair. So you've got that, that the issue of the social media sites, but also in relation to the LinkedIn, the professional LinkedIn. And just to comment on it, there's no Irish case on this as to whether or not your LinkedIn comments or your LinkedIn contacts, I should say, are uh, proprietary to the employer or to the individual in question. Um, there's been a couple of interesting cases from around the 2011, 2013 in the UK that provides that where the employer um, has an interest in the LinkedIn usage or where the role in question involves the use of LinkedIn, um, then the employer may well have a, a, a legal right to the contacts that are created or, uh, or garnered during the period of employment in question. Uh, it doesn't mean that all contacts of the person on, on, on termination of employment um, uh, uh, then uh, get transferred to the employer and even in those two particular cases where the, the court was willing to find that the contacts uh, were owned by the employer, it didn't mean pre-employment contacts and there you get into that messy area of trying to separate them out. But without a policy which actually sets out in clear terms that your LinkedIn contacts created with the contacts that you make um, during your employment with us are our contacts, the employer will have great difficulty in protecting its business by ensuring that those contacts don't go with the employee to the new employer. And in relation to then, just for one minute over you because I'm getting that signal, in relation to those cases where um, the use or abuse of social media platforms or other such platforms will be deemed to be unlawful and create difficulties in the workplace, I just thought I'd take you very quickly through, in, by way of, of snapshot, um, different scenarios where someone has used intranet, Bebo, Facebook, Link, uh, Twitter and YouTube. So in Walsh, uh, Walker versus Bosch and Lom, um, you have the issue of an internet uh, comment that's placed online which is uh, quite uh, damaging, uh, could have serious implications in terms of publicity and workplace industrial relations and the dismissal for posting this comment, we don't know what the comment was, um, which would have serious uh, repercussions for the business, uh, was the dismissal was deemed to be not a fair dismissal uh, because there was no no proof that the employee had received or read the internet's uh, the internet usage policy, so it goes back to what process have we in place to say you know ticking the box or signing the handbook? There has to be that policy in place. Otherwise, that's the case I was referring to where the what would have been otherwise a fair dismissal was deemed to be not a fair dismissal. In terms of uh, Facebook, you've got a, a, a person, an individual's Facebook site. Uh, or page which is open in the workplace and the manager came across it. Now, I don't know how the manager came across it 
to read it to the extent that she saw these negative remarks where she was referred to as a, as a BITCH and then calls the employee in for an investigation and uh, asked for access to the Facebook, to the, to, the, to, the, to, the, to, the, to the employee's Facebook account and found loads of other um, negative remarks and dismissed. And the Employment Appeals Tribunal, as it was then, deemed it to be a fair dismissal because the trust and confidence, but in this small employment, again, context is everything. In this small employment where you have such damaging remarks by uh, a member of staff in relation to their manager, damaged the trust and confidence of the relationship and, and was deemed to be a fair uh, dismissal. You contrast that with another uh, type of case in relation to a Bebo account or one of the examples that um, one of the team came up with. Now, I don't know if you can make this out, but that's a, someone apparently is on uh, Snapchat uh, and you can put bunny ears on yourself. That's a girl behind the Snapchat. And then she Snapchatted her pal, but it was more widely circulated, so it became public. She named the company. We were, in the context of anyone who does redaction for data protection purposes, I can see that we didn't take a consistent approach. Oh, we did. Sorry. A consistent approach to racial redaction. So, um, pack of, we'll call that cats. Pack of, <laughs> pack of stupid cats out in Mason Hayes. Uh, not even a text to see if I'm okay. Come on, HR. Uh, go affect yourselves, two-faced cats. So, so where you've got these really offensive remarks being posted, and in that same cat remark was used in an Aware case from 2008, where someone had posted on Bebo uh, reference to the manager. Again, how widely is it circulated? So in that, in that Facebook case, it was a small business. It was a, a more narrow circulation of the Facebook uh, disparaging remark deemed to be fair dismissal. Um, even though in this case, in this Bebo case, in Aware, it was a more wide dissemination, uh, very offensive, um, held to be an unfair dismissal, partly because the policy wasn't as clear as it, as it might be, no proof that, that, that the policy was made known, um, uh, uh, um, and, 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 and also for some reason because it was disproportionate, perhaps because of the size of the business. Um, right, I'm going to finish up uh, and pass over to Melanie. Um, we might have a few minutes at the end for questions in relation to any uh, practical examples that no doubt you guys are facing on a, on a daily basis. It's interesting that when we showed that Snapchat picture unredacted to the adjudicator in the unfair dismissal claim last week, he didn't want to see it, couldn't give her ashers, he had no interest, um, and he completely dismissed it. Um, which is interesting if you think back to what Ronnie was saying about uh, another case where a similar comment was held to be fundamental to the relationship of trust and confidence, which is supposed to exist between an employer and employee. But it just goes to show that none of us can legislate for what particular adjudicators think or how they perceive things or what they're prepared to pay attention to or not as the case might be we thought this was a smoking gun it wasn't um so just interesting right we can't talk about technology without talking about data um and some of that's because technology facilitates the collection of huge and vast amounts of data, whether that is company data, whether or not it's confidential data or confidential information, or whether it's an individual's personal data, and whether that personal data is personal data which belongs to clients or to customers, 
or whether it's personal data that belongs to employees of the organisation. Um, and Ronnie mentioned the Data Protection Commissioner and the Data Protection Law earlier on. One of the things that you have to do every time that you're talking about personal data or thinking about personal data is to go back to the eight rules of data protection. Ronnie mentioned a few of them. I'm going to call them out because they are absolutely fundamental to any consideration of personal data. And bear in mind that personal data is anything from which an individual can be identified. So an individual's name, an individual's picture, which is the reason it extends to Ronnie's point to CCTV or to the iPhone picture or whatever. So personal data is anything from which an individual can be identified. So the rules of data protection when it comes to personal data. One, the personal data has to be obtained and processed fairly. So the source of it must be fair. And again, we're into what Ronnie was talking about is the iPhone footage, is that fair collection? Is that fair retention? How long you keep things? The second one is that information can be kept for one or more specified explicit and lawful purposes. So why are you collecting or why are you retaining a particular piece of personal data about an individual? Personal data can be kept, sorry, can be used and disclosed only in ways compatible with the purposes for which you specified you were collecting it. The fourth one is that personal data has to be kept safe and secure. The fifth one is that personal data has to be kept accurate, complete and up to date. The sixth one is that personal data has to be adequate, relevant, and not excessive. And I'm going to mention all of these over the course of the next few minutes, but that is one of the most important ones, particularly in an employment context, that personal data is relevant and not excessive. The seventh one is that personal data is retained for no longer than necessary for the specified purpose or for the purpose which you've specified that you've collected and are retaining it. And the last one is that per, a copy of an individual's personal data has to be given to that individual upon request. Now that applies whether I am writing to AIB to say I want a copy of my personal data or Aircom or Vodafone or whomever, or whether it's an employee in an organization looking for a copy of the personal data that is held about that particular employee. So, For today's purposes, I want to just talk about three things in particular, or three areas where we get asked questions on a very regular basis. Um, in relation to, and that comes up in relation to the hiring process, in relation to a couple of things during the employment relationship, and in relation to subject access requests. So when we talk about the hiring process, it used to be the case that whenever somebody rang us up to ask us about um, interviews or about selection for roles, that we got asked about the kinds of questions that could or should or shouldn't be asked in an employment context. And a lot of those was around kind of equality-related issues. But I think that's fairly much generally understood now. When we get asked questions about the hiring process now, it's about background checks. And I, and I have to say, hand on heart, there are 20 of us on the team. I'd say this is an issue that we get asked 
almost every single day of the week. So what are background checks? Well, background checks are, as you can imagine, educational checks and reference checks for individuals. But we're increasingly getting asked about criminal background checks and credit checks. And the criminal background checks in particular comes up when we're talking to, in particular, US multinationals. Because in the US, it's common practice for employers to do criminal background checks on applicants and on employees, and in some cases, on their mammies and daddies and brothers and sisters and wives and cousins and aunts and uncles. Um, and they struggle with and they struggle to understand the fact that that's not something that they can do over here. It was something actually they could do in the UK until relatively recently. Um, and since the Garda vetting unit was set up, or after it was set up, a practice developed where organisations required individuals to go and have a background check done on themselves and to hand over the results. Now, that is unlawful and it's very clearly unlawful. And the only circumstances in which employers can have background checks, criminal background checks done on applicants or on employees is where those individuals are going to work with the, in, with the elderly, with the infirm and with children. And in no other circumstances are criminal background checks lawful. Now, to appease clients, one of the things that we sometimes suggest is that employees might be required to self-declare so that they're required to fill out a one-page form that declares whether or not they have any criminal convictions or whether they've, they've had any run-ins with the law in the past. Now, that is fine in one sense. It's obviously problematic because there's no way to fact-check it. But as against that, an issue arises then about whether, because obviously that is personal data, about whether that personal data is relevant and not excessive. So if any organisation wants an individual to self-declare their criminal background um, and wants to retain that information, they better be absolutely sure that if and when the Data Protection Commissioner's office comes knocking, that they have a very good and clear reason for asking for that information and for retaining it. And the same goes in relation to credit checks. Um, which are very popular, particularly in the financial services industry. Not, in my experience, by the banks or the investment houses, but a lot of the time by the service providers, um, and particularly the international service providers. So while, if you think about this, it might be relevant and not excessive to ask a head of lending or a head of risk to provide details of their own personal credit history might, might. I'm not even entirely sure it would be relevant and not excessive for data protection purposes. But it's very hard to see how asking some guy who's processing payments for a multinational technology company um, on an outsourced basis or processing payments for one of the financial institutions, why they should be required to hand over details of their own personal credit history and why or how it wouldn't be excessive if that information was retained. And the other question we get asked then in relation to background checks is, Ronnie Neville just came in, can I Google him? Can I check his Facebook account? Well, 
this is something that we debate a lot. We had a debate about it last year. Ding dong, debate. I prefer debate, Ronnie. <laughs> <laughs> we, have <ding> <laughs> we have lots of debates. Um, we don't have the answers, actually. That's why we have to debate these issues. And that's, that's part of our training as lawyers, to be able to try and see both sides of the argument. But the reality is there aren't very clear answers to any of these questions because the law is developing so quickly all of the time. Um, can you look at Facebook? Can you look at somebody? Can you Google somebody when they come in for an interview? My own personal view is that you'd be mad not to. Um, and the reality is that something most interviewers and, interviewers and organizations do. But whatever about looking at it, would it be relevant and not excessive to actually download it or copy it and then put a, 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 you know, a copy of it on an employee's personnel file? I actually think doing that could be crossing the line in terms of good data protection and what is and isn't permissible and lawful in relation to um, an employee or an applicant's personal data. We get a similar issue in relation to checking whether somebody has a right to work. Do you have to check whether everybody has a right to work? Some organisations have a policy of having every applicant confirm that they are entitled to work in the Republic of Ireland. And that, in our increasingly multinational business environment, that is something that is important because employers have to be sure that individuals have the right to work here. But what do you need to check whether somebody has a right to work here? You need proof that they are a citizen of the European Economic Area or Switzerland. How do you get that proof? A passport? That's enough proof. How long do you keep that passport for? How long do you have to retain that for the duration of the employment relationship? I think that's relevant and I don't think that's excessive. But how long do you keep it afterwards for? That's something that you have to almost look at every piece of personal data that you keep about an employee and decide how long you should keep it or how long you shouldn't keep it and at what point you should destroy it. But it's when you go beyond asking for people's passports or you're looking at somebody from outside the EEA or Switzerland and how you prove that they have a right to work here or if they have a right to work here because they are somebody's spouse, are you entitled to look for a marriage certificate? Potentially, yes, you are. But it's all about whether you could justify that if and when the Data Protection Commissioner comes knocking on your door. So that is kind of data and technology and where it comes up in the hiring process. But I want to talk about two things in relation to the employment relationship and the ongoing employment relationship. And that is information, data, whether that is company information, confidential information, or whether it is, like I said earlier, personal data belonging to your clients or your customers or personal data belonging to your employees. Now, one of the advantages and potentially disadvantages of technology is that all of this data, whether it's confidential information or whether it's personal data, is now very portable. And we all know that it's very easy to clip hook a little fob into the laptop and download everything from the system or to send it up to the cloud or to email it to a personal Gmail address. It's also very easy now with the right advice and the right experts to trace that kind of information. Um, but it's very important that you're clear about how you want to protect it, both confidential information and personal data. 
confidential information isn't protected by common law. So it's only protected insofar as you have a contractual provision or a policy that says, this is what we as an organisation consider our confidential information to be, and this is the information that you cannot disseminate outside of the organisation during the employment relationship or after the end of the employment relationship. And likewise, when it comes to personal data, one of those eight rules I called out is an obligation to keep personal data safe and secure. How do you do that? You have to limit access. So you have to make sure that not everybody in the organization has access to employees' personnel files. You have to make sure that to the extent you have personal data in a portable form, whether it's on somebody's laptop or it's on the system, that it's properly encrypted. And the importance of encryption and the importance of firewalls becomes all the more important if you think about what happened or has happened this week in relation to the ransomware um, in the health services industry. So technology brings advantages and it brings challenges, but it also brings um, issues and it brings things that you have to think about in relation to protection. So our tips in relation to how you manage that portability of data and confidential information is that you make very sure that you have it secure, whether that's because it's encrypted or because it's limited access when it comes to personal information. You make sure that you have very clear policies setting out what confidential information is and what can happen with employees' personal data. And you set that out in a policy. Um, and that you make sure, as Ronnie said, and we say time and time again, that those policies are properly communicated to employees of the organisation because they're no use to man or beast when they're in the drawer of somebody's desk. They have to be communicated and they have to be kept up to date, which means they have to be reviewed, you know, with the technology ones actually constantly, you know, every six months or every year, and then re-communicated to employees. One of the other issues that we come up in the context of the employment relationship is the whole notion of whether employees should be allowed to use their own devices for business purposes. The Americans love this, BYOD, they call it. It's hot, it's not, it's hot, it's not. Nobody can figure out whether employees should be allowed to use their own devices. I mean, obviously, there are benefits because there's a huge cost saving in requiring employees to use their own mobile phones or their own iPads or their own laptops for business purposes. But there are also huge risks. How do you control what goes onto them? How do you ensure that confidential information on those devices is kept confidential? How do you ensure that personal data on those devices is kept safe and secure? How do you ensure those devices aren't used, to Ronnie's point, for taking pictures and videos in the workplace, whether that's of somebody snoring or whether it's of somebody working? How do you ensure that they're not used to copy and disseminate employer confidential information or employee personal data? You do it, again, by having a very clear policy if you are going to let your employees in your organizations to use their own iPhones or their own laptops or their own iPods, iPads even, um, you need to be very clear about what they can use them for. You need to be very, very clear about how you isolate company information and company personal data so the personal data of your clients, the personal data of your employees, from the individual's personal data. 
You need to be very clear in your policy about how that's kept secure. You need access to the, to the device so that you can install <clears throat> protection software and encryption software. You need to be very clear about the requirement to hand over the phone or the iPad or the laptop if and when the individual is leaving. And then you need to be prepared for what happens if they won't. So one of the things that your policy should provide for, or you should make sure that your internal IT systems can handle, is the remote wiping of confidential information from an individual's personal device. And if you can't do all of that, and you're not prepared to have a very clear policy, then you shouldn't be allowing employees to use their own personal devices for work purposes. Um, Ronnie touched on the network point. Um, I, I had two instances in the last few months where clients got a knock on the door because Warner Brothers, in one instance, could identify eight laptops owned by the organization in India, Germany, and Ireland where employees had downloaded software to block access, BitTorrent software, and then use that software to download their movies and Game of Thrones. Um, and another one where an individual um, used, was downloading something in their hotel, went onto a client site, um, and then hooked into the client site's network. And actually the result of that was that the client terminated the commercial relationship with the employer. So massive ramifications. And that's why it's very important that employees are reminded again and again and again what they can and cannot do and what they should and shouldn't do, not just with their devices, but with their access to the network as well. And all of this is changing so quickly. It's important that this is kept at the top of everybody's agenda and revisited and reconsidered considered all of the time. Now, finally, I want to touch on subject access requests because, like I said, I can go to Bank of Ireland or AIB and I can ask for a copy of any personal data they keep about me, but likewise, employees can go to their employers and ask for a copy of any personal data that is kept about them. And um, when we were talking about this yesterday, actually, we came up with the same phrase. This is the single biggest stick in an employee's armor, or has the potential to be the single biggest stick in an employee's armor. And that's because if an employee makes a subject access request, which is very easy for them to do, the legislation says you simply have to ask for a copy of the personal data that's kept about you, or the employee has to make that request. It has to be accompanied by a check for six euro and 35 cent, um, which will be done away with shortly. And the employer then has 40 days to comply with that request. Um, you know, if, if somebody's in your organization a month or two months, you can see how that might be a little bit of work to actually gather everything with that individual's name on it or with their picture on it or anything from which they might be identified. But if an, if an employee is with an organization for 25 years, you can appreciate that that is something that might cost tens of thousands of euro to collate, um, to redact other personal data from whatever is being handed over, and to then put it in a readable format to give it to the requester, to the employee. Um, so massive ramifications in terms of compliance with this obligation. Um, and bear in mind that I've told you what personal data is, but the request extends to anything that's kept soft copy or as part of a 
manual filing system. So soft copy is anything in an email, anything in a letter on your system, anything in an attendance note. Um, and it's very interesting when organizations want to defend cases on points of principle and a week before the hearing date, you're given a copy of the results of somebody's personal subject access request or an individual makes a subject access request and all of a sudden an email turns up with um, Ron, fire him, or we don't want to hire any more Paddies. These are actual examples. Um, I had one a few years ago where there was an email that said, she's of that age, she'll probably have another two babies. Um, and in a discrimination claim, it's going to make it very hard to defend it when there's emails floating around the place. And there's this wonderful habit, particularly in the tech sector, of adding people to emails. So plus Ronnie, plus Orla, plus Ger, plus Avril, and everybody, and all of a sudden there's a cast and crew of thousands on an email chain. Um, and that means lots of things. That means an individual's personal data is being disseminated beyond where it should be. But it also means for our purposes, that when everybody's copied in the email chain, it makes it very hard to find somebody who hasn't been involved when it comes to a disciplinary hearing or an appeal, um, particularly when everybody's being involved at a senior level and there's evidence of that because everybody's been copied in emails. So what do you do about it? Um, you educate and train. And it's very strange for us to be on the phone to clients and at the end of every call to say to them, be careful about your notes, be careful about your emails, be careful about what you're texting to each other. Because while what we say is usually covered by legal professional privilege, when that's relayed on in, the, in an organization or when there's communications behind the scenes in an organization about an individual, or more often than not, about a redundancy exercise, because organizations go off and create these wonderful matrices about what they want the organization to look like after a restructure. And if they put the mistake, if they make the mistake, as most do, of putting employees' names into that, then they've undermined the entire consultation process and they've handed somebody an unfair dismissal claim, all of which will come out if the individual makes a subject access request. So while on the one hand we say to organizations, particularly when it comes to interviews or disciplinary meetings or investigations um, or where there's conflict in the workplace, take notes, take memos, record what's said. At the same vein, we're also saying to organisations, but bear in mind, whatever you write down, whatever you email to each other, whatever you text to each other could be caught by a subject access request. So you have to do it on the basis that it may or is likely to have to be shared with an individual if they were ever to make a subject access request. Complete whistle-stop tour of the issues that we come across on a daily basis. We haven't talked to you about the use of technology for remote working. We haven't talked to you about the use of technology to facilitate the gig economy, which is something everybody's talking about at the moment. We haven't talked to you about the always-on culture and how you manage employees' working time when they've got their phones and they're responding to emails in the evenings. We haven't talked to you about digitalization because, like I said at the beginning, we'd be here forever and a day if we were going to try and cover everything. But what we've tried to do is give you a flavor of the types of questions and the areas where we get asked advice, get asked for advice as a team on a daily basis.